long before the apostle John picked up a quill and began to write letters to Christians, a Persian soldier had become a wealthy man. 500 years before the birth of Christ, Cyrus, the king of Persia, wanted to conquer Sardis and capture its legendary treasures of gold. And He first had to capture the fortress which protected the city, and the fortress was built on the edge of a cliff, simply no way to attack it from the front, really, and certainly no way to attack it from the rear. Cyrus, in his uh, frustration, finally offered a large reward to any soldier who could figure a way in. A soldier by the name of Hieroides determined to watch the soldiers that guarded the cliff, that cliffside stone battlement. One evening he was watching and a, a soldier accidentally knocked his helmet off the wall. It tumbled down and sort of cascaded down the cliff into the valley and to the surprise of Hieroides, I hope you never name your son that. I'll never be able to say hello to him in the lobby. Hieroides watched as that soldier climbed down the wall and then down that cliff, find his helmet and scamper back up. He made a mental marker of that path and later, as he led a a small group of soldiers under the cover of darkness, they found depressions had been carved into the cliff and even into the wall. And when they eventually reached the top of that battlement, they found the walls unguarded for the most part, except for a few soldiers, and they were asleep. Even though one of the world's most powerful empires was in battle array, not too far away, the soldiers of Sardis weren't concerned enough to stay awake, to keep watch. It's no coincidence that 500 years later, God will effectively refer back to that event as he warns the church located in Sardis and the church located everywhere to wake up, specifically pointing their memories back to a time when they fell asleep. In fact, twice God admonishes the church that they are spiritually sleeping at the wheel, effectively, in grave danger. So John the Apostle translates God's warning to Sardis in the book of Revelation and chapter 3 using this verb, gregoreo, which means to wake up. It means to be alert. We've taken that verb, gregoreo, and we've turned that into a name that we can pronounce, Gregory or Greg. In Revelation chapter 3, the apostle John uses the imperative as he challenges the church in Sardis, and he he literally shouts, wake up! The apostle Paul will use the same word as he warns the believers living in Corinth. He writes to them, exhorting them to be on the alert, Gregoreo, wake up, stand firm in the faith, act like men. He writes, be strong, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. One of the great concerns of the apostles was the protection of the church. 
Even, even to a new, young church, the threat was serious. The apostle Paul warned the Ephesian church that they needed to be discerning so that they wouldn't be spiritually gullible, just sort of carried around on every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. The Apostle Paul actually lays a good deal of responsibility of spiritual alertness and protection at the feet of the elders of the church. He warned these elders in the church at Ephesus that as soon as he left them, he just knew that as soon as he left them, false teachers would try and find a way, as it were, over the wall of truth. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves, he calls them, will come in among you, not sparing the flock, Acts chapter 20, verse 29. One author writes it this way. He says, many an elder fails because he is not vigilant. He, he took it for granted that there really weren't any wolves, no birds of prey, no robbers. And while he was sleeping, the enemy arrived. False ideas Destructive interpretations and false teaching came into the flock and he never knew it. Errors as fierce as wolves and pitiless as hyenas. They tear faith, hope, and love to pieces and leave churches mangled and half dead. The danger, of course, in the 21st century is even greater, perhaps because teaching can reach a member of the flock without ever having to come to the assembly without ever having to gain credibility among the flock and then begin to teach false teaching. They don't have to come through the front door anymore. In Paul's day and in ours, part of the trouble is that false teachers also, they don't just show up in red suits with pitchforks in their hands. They often do many good things. They're good people. And many of them present themselves as family-oriented and values-driven and model citizens and, oh yeah, we believe in God too and we're ever smiling, ready to put you in touch with the Jesus you'd really like to follow. The devil doesn't just prowl around like a lion, roaring lion, First Peter 5, 8. The devil also appears as an angel of light, Second Corinthians eleven fourteen. He spreads systematic, carefully thought through teaching. 1 Timothy 4.1 He has his array of false ministers. 2 Corinthians 11.15 Even fallen angels masquerading as messengers of the gospel. Galatians 1 verse 8 So if the apostles had problems with Counterfeit teaching in the first century, why would we ever think in the 21st century that we can go to sleep? The truth is, detecting counterfeit truth and counterfeit gospels and counterfeit spiritualities and counterfeit teachers is as great a problem for the church today than it has ever been. It's been interesting to me, as we've studied through this particular letter together, that several individuals who work in the banking and financial world have come up to me after one of our morning services and have said to me, you know, you've... you've You've mentioned some things that have provoked my thinking. I wonder if you know about the special training given to those who handle currency so that they can spot counterfeit. And I said, no, tell me about it. And they told me, fascinating training. In fact, uh, the American Banking Association sponsors a 
a two-week training program to detect counterfeit bills. And during this unique program, the tellers never once ever look at counterfeit money. They don't handle it. They don't look at it. They're not showing all the different varieties. They literally spend two weeks handling, observing, counting, holding, feeling, inspecting the real item, hour after hour, day after day. One of these individuals that came up to me said that this training includes times when all the lights are turned out and they handle the money in complete darkness. They're going to be able later on to detect counterfeit money, as it were, with their eyes closed just by the feel of the texture of the paper. Detecting and avoiding counterfeit teachers, counterfeit deceiving doctrines is one of the big strings on the Apostle John's fiddle, and he, he strums it often throughout his letters. He's about to do the same again as he gives us a wonderful and objective way to put teachers to the test to see if they're really delivering the truth. Here's how to test your teacher. Here's how you can test me as well. First John, let's pick it up where we left off at chapter 4 and verse 1. Beloved, by the way, he's writing this to believers, right? Beloved, which means the beloved can believe wrong things. They're not careful. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, in this opening verse, John gives the believer a command. There are two parts to the command, you notice. First, he tells us what not to do. Do not believe every spirit. Now, the word spirit here is is not a reference to some vaporous being, some disembodied ghost that haunts some great aunt's home. This isn't a reference to some strange, weird, vaporous, misty thing. It's a reference to anything under the guise of spiritual truth, spiritual wisdom, spiritual direction. In other words, don't believe everything that comes under the banner of spirituality. Let me break it down even further. Don't believe everything you hear, even if the person uses the names God or Jesus or heaven or the Bible. Don't believe everything you hear. There's no spiritual prize for gullibility here. Don't believe every spiritual thing you hear. And the world uses the word spiritual, doesn't it? We'll talk about, oh, that was a spiritual experience. He's such a spiritual person. I'll never forget one Saturday morning a number of years ago with uh, our twin sons. The three of us were in a booth eating at a breakfast bar. It used to be Shoney's over there by uh, Burlington Goat Factory. It's now something else. And, uh, but we were there. They had their you know, breakfast bar I can eat. That's what I call quality time with my sons. And so we were there just you know, eating away. And, and I remember there was a couple in their mid-30s sitting in the booth next to us having this intense conversation. It wasn't angry. It was just really intense, especially the woman. And I, I remember hearing her say the word spiritual. It kind of perked up my ears and I kind of leaned over, boys, hang on just a second, and kind of leaned over 
you know, just to hear what was spiritual over here at this booth. It turns out that this woman was trying to convince her friend to follow her spiritual guru, she called him. I remember my heart kind of sinking. She was trying to convince this man to follow her teaching. She's, she said, he, he leads you to truth. Very intense. She referred to her teacher's wisdom, his many years of experience. In fact, near the end of the conversation, she said, in fact, I wrote in my journal, she said with this great sense of urgency, she, I could see her with her fists clenched, and she was kind of whispering loudly, and she said to him, you must follow the voice of his experience. That's not the message of John. He doesn't say here in verse 1, do not believe every spirit unless they've got years of experience. Unless they're down the road. You know, the further down the road, the more likely you are to have true spiritual wisdom about the reality of Jesus Christ. Now, you can hear the truth about Jesus Christ from a five-year-old. Don't do that, he says. That's what not to do. Now, here's what to do. He adds, verse 1. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. The word for test that John uses here is the word dakamadzo. It means to scrutinize. It means to carefully examine, to think critically, to put to the test. Do what a young lady did recently who left Colonial. She moved away and was looking for another church. She came back for a visit and told me, she came up and she said, you know, I'm looking for another church. And I said, how's it going? And she says, well, I got a system. I said, what is it? She said, well, I I go and I visit the pastor of a prospective church and I bring in with me a notebook and I've got all of my biblical and doctrinal questions laid out. I said, way to go. Way to go. It's outstanding. You see, when you were in school, maybe you're still there, here's the way it works. You listen to your teacher and then you take a test and John says, no, 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 you, let, let's, let's create a role reversal. You first test the teacher. And then, if they pass the test, listen to them. The word he uses here for test is commonly used in John's generation for testing the genuineness of coinage. Most often by weight. Made me think of early American history simplest but not always the best test for determining real gold from fool's gold was to bite down on the coin. Gold is softer than fool's gold, which is why in Western movies, I always wondered why, until I read this, that you got the old-timer kind of biting down on a coin. What's he doing? He's seeing if he can dent it. If, it, if he can, it's good. If it breaks his tooth, it's, it's bad. <laughs> John isn't telling us to go around biting people to see if we're going to listen to them, but he does command us, examine them, scrutinize them. Notice, verse 1, to see if they are from God. You're not only hearing, but you're seeing. So examine everything about their lives and their teaching to see if they are from God. That is, see if what they say and how they live would be something that God would be willing to associate with. Now, the Old Testament tests for determining true spokesmen or prophets were fairly simple, and prophecies were more than predictions. They were messages. 
supposedly from God. So Deuteronomy 13 offers the test. Does their message draw people away from God or toward God? Another test is, does the prophet deliver man-pleasing messages, what they want to hear, or what God wants to say? Ezekiel 13 and Micah 3. Does their moral character meet God's standard? False prophets were often charged, like in Jeremiah chapters 8, 14, and 23, with lying and immorality. Lying and immorality just seem to go together. And probably the most obvious of all, and you're probably thinking of this particular test and you're waiting for me to get to it, here's the last one. Did their predictions come true? Simple as that. Did what they said would happen, happen? So write it down, remember it, and then a few years later find out, did it happen? Or maybe even sooner. Did it come to pass? If it didn't come to pass, guess what happened to that prophet's retirement plan? It it was gone, as was his life for daring to masquerade as a spokesman of God, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Anybody who predicted the future and supposedly received information from the spirit world and it didn't come true was executed, which had a way of keeping people from volunteering for this particular role because they thought it might be a nice career. I couldn't help but think of a most recent case of these missing girls who were abducted and held for around 10 years. One of the mothers of one of these girls was on a television talk show 10 years ago in which the talk show host brought in a psychic who had, as she said, a spirit guide to inform her. And when this psychic was asked by this mother who was terribly distraught, as you can imagine, If her daughter was alive, the psychic responded definitively by saying the girl was dead. Quote, she's now on the other side, but her last words were, goodbye, mom, I love you. The mother, of course, was crushed. In fact, she would die a year later of heart failure, even though a young mother But then nine years later, her daughter, very much alive, escaped from her abductor. It's been interesting, and I've gone online and looked at some of the response back and forth. This psychic has come under intense fire, which I'm grateful for. She would respond, her spokesman on her blog or website, to being held accountable for her false prediction by saying, and I quote her, I have been more right than wrong. Being a spokesman for that which is true and genuine is not a matter of percentages. I got three out of four right. Notice what John writes. He says in verse 1, many of these false pretenders, false prophets, have gone out into the world. Catch that. He's not saying they're going to go out. He's saying they already have. This isn't a future danger. In fact, the phrase, they've gone out into the world, has the nuance in the original language, this implication that they are on a global mission. 
They're literally on their own mission trip. I mean, just as we're sending mission teams to different places around the world to deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ, false teachers are, are racking up frequent flyer miles delivering a false representation of the spirit world, a false understanding of the nature of God, and above all, a false interpretation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're on a mission, though. Are we on a mission? They're at it. It doesn't matter where I've gone in the world. It amazes me to find false religion at every other corner, many of them from America. If John is saying that there is a proliferation of false teachers 2,000 years ago, imagine how many false prophets and false religions and false teachers and false spiritual leaders and false paths and false faiths there are today, all claiming to speak with the authority of God. And this doesn't mean, by the way, that they're all really bad people, that they always do really bad things. They might be model citizens. John doesn't use goodness as a litmus test, uh, necessarily the final test for authenticity. They may have done a lot of good things. In fact, every deceiving prophet or teacher we know from the Word of God will not be exposed until the final judgment. In other words, many of them will go undetected throughout their entire lives until they stand before Jesus. And they complain Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not give messages in the name of Jesus? And Jesus will say effectively, well, you did, but I don't have a relationship with you. I don't know who you are. Matthew chapter 7. That day of reckoning is coming. In the meantime, John doesn't want us floundering out here and just saying, well, I'm not going to know for sure if they're telling the truth or not. I guess we're just going to have to wait. No, he says, look, stay alert. Don't be gullible. Put your teachers to the test. And now John provides the most important test you can give to your teacher. You have the command, and now the criterion. Look at verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. In other words, this is how you know the Spirit of God is speaking and not some counterfeit spirit. Every spirit that confesses, agrees with this truth, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not agree in some way, shape, or form, Jesus, is not from God. This is instead the spirit of the Antichrist that is against Christ diminishing Christ, of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world, the spirit of Antichrist. John has already introduced us, by the way, to the, to the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, more explicitly in chapter 3, the last verse. In fact, you, in fact, if you look up at verse 24, we're told that it's by the, the Spirit we, we know this. In fact, we have been given the Spirit This third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, he's called the Holy Spirit only by John in his gospel, chapter 1, chapter 14, chapter 20. Now John is going to refer to the genuine protecting ministry of the Holy Spirit in you which resonates with the truth 
from the Word of God about the Son of God, and this is the criterion that you run everything by. What does that prophet, what does that teacher, what does that person with spiritual insight, supposed discernment, what do they say about Jesus? That's simple. More specifically, by the way, let's look at what John says. More specifically, what do they confess about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh? Verse 2. That Jesus Christ has come, if you have a pencil, you ought to circle the word in. In the flesh. Not on the flesh. Not upon flesh. But in the flesh. John is attacking Serinthian Gnosticism. You're not going to have to know that for the quiz I'm going to give you later, but let me at least tell you this much. Serinthus lived during the days of the Apostle John. He was a burr in his saddle. In fact, at one point in time, John was at a bathhouse and he found out that Serinthus was there and John rushed out of the building, not even wanting to be under the same roof as this heretic. Serinthus was the first one to sort of package uh, a heresy that has been promoted all the way up until our time today, and it is this, this heresy that, that uh, Jesus was an ordinary man upon whom the Spirit of Christ, or the mind of Christ, or the Christ Spirit descended. It happened uh, at his baptism. The Bible tells us that something resembling a dove descended on Jesus. Well, that was the Christ Spirit. And that empowered this ordinary man to do wonderful things, amazing things. But the Christ Spirit left Jesus at the crucifixion, poor Jesus, and Jesus then died. Of course, this effectively destroys the atonement. A man can't die for the sins of the world. An ordinary sinful man cannot die to pay the penalty for other sinners. So I want you to notice carefully here how John equates Jesus with Christ. He runs both terms together. Jesus Christ. Jesus was not empowered by Christ. Jesus is Christ. He didn't have some Christ spirit descending upon him. He is and always shall be the anointed one. John writes, Jesus Christ was then in effect already existing, but then he came in the flesh. He was a real man with a real human body, pre-existing as equal to the Father. Philippians chapter 2 fills in the blanks. He was none other than God the Son from time past, eternal time. Now he's come in the flesh. Now John is also answering, by the way, the Jewish argument that Jesus was not the Messiah. He uses that term Christos, Christ, the anointed one from God who would be none other than the Messiah. In other words, Jesus then didn't begin his existence in Bethlehem, that is, as the Son of God. Bethlehem was simply the birthplace where God's Son, who existed from all of eternity, first appeared then on earth in human flesh born of the Virgin Mary. So in this one brief phrase, which is absolutely loaded, John answers Gnosticism and Serenthinianism and Judaism 
and Mormonism, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists, Buddhism, Hinduism, you just go down the list. Every religious system that refuses the unique singularity, confessing to the truth that Jesus Christ is uniquely God in the flesh. Preexistent eternal God. By this criterion, you can examine the religions, the isms, the spasms of our over-religious world. They come to your porch and they say, we'd like to interest you in Jesus Christ. You can say, I am already interested in Jesus Christ, who is my Lord and Savior, the God-man who came. But don't think that every deceiving prophet or teacher that believes something differently other than this confession is not going to do any good things for people. Think of it this way. Warren Wearsby in his wonderful little commentary on First John illustrated it this way. He said, suppose you have a counterfeit $10 bill. You don't know it. You just happen to be given it the course of a year, a week. You think it's genuine and you use it, Wearsby writes, to pay for a tank of gas. I would update his commentary to clarify you got two and a half gallons of gas, <laughs> not, not quite a tank. Dates the commentary a little bit. The gas station manager later uses the bill to buy supplies. The supplier uses the bill to pay for groceries. The grocer then bundles the bill up with 49 other $10 bills and takes it to the bank. And the teller counts it all, but then stops and says, I'm sorry, but this particular $10 bill is a counterfeit. Now, that $10 bill did a lot of good things while it was in circulation. But when it arrived at the bank and was handled by an expert, it was exposed for what it really was. There will be that exposure at the final judgment. In the meantime, we expose them by judging them according to this test. We test their confession of faith. Now what John does next following the command and the criterion is he provides a contrast. Notice verse 4, there's this contrasting relationship. He writes, For you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. That is, these false teachers. Because greater is he, a reference to the Spirit of God, who is in you than he who is in the world. In other words, by means of the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, delivering the true confession about the Son of God, you, John writes, have defeated false teachers. The verb, you have overcome, is used in a lot of different ways, and many of them may be correct, but in this context here, in the perfect tense, he's actually implying a definite time in the past where these believers had faced false teachers, they'd heard the message, they scrutinized it, They determined it by means of the Spirit of God, with the truth of God's Word, that they weren't saying the right thing about the Son of God, that they were false. And they dismissed that teacher. They refused to listen to that teacher, and they gained victory. They overcame them. That's the idea here. John may have an incident in mind, or maybe two. We we don't know because he doesn't tell us. 
But we do know that John has already used the present tense in verse 1 to tell us that we should continuously be testing the spirits. So the total picture here in John's heart and mind as he writes this to these believers and to ourselves would be this. We may have won a victory or two in the past against false teaching. We've been alert. We've been listening. We've been evaluating it against the confession of Christ in the Word. But we are to maintain alertness. We are to stay at our posts. We are to effectively keep our helmets on. We're to watch out. We're to evaluate what we hear and see and read about Christ or God or heaven or hell or the way there. And additional victories can then be won against them. Now I want to point out briefly the contrasting response to what he's teaching. Look at verse 5. They are from the world, that is those who disbelieve this confession. Therefore they, these false teachers, speak as from the world, and the world does what? The world listens to them. These present tense verbs indicate these false teachers keep talking, 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 talking. And the world keeps listening, 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 listening. And haven't you wondered, why does the world keep listening, listening, listening to all the talking, talking, talking? In fact, the verb for talking means empty prattling, nonsense. And the world goes, wow, that was so great. That was perfect. Maybe even shed a tear or two. Why does that happen? Have you ever wondered why heretics have a following? Have you ever wondered why false religions gain a following? It amazes me. It amazes me that there would be those that would actually believe that somehow we're just going to vaporize into eternal consciousness. I mean, if I were an unbeliever, I'd say, what fun is that? How can a woman believe in Mormonism that she's going to spend eternity bearing children? (laughs) What fun is that? The message of false teachers, however, stimulates base desire and attitudes. And the world is, is, is effectively hearing what they want to hear. And these teachers wrap their language in pseudo-spiritual lingo. They mention God and Jesus and all of that kind of stuff. They even hold their Bible up, you know, and, and say, repeat after me. But John writes here in verse 3, it is antichrist. That is, it does not exalt Christ. It exalts the human The focus is not on God as a person, but on what God can give you. It doesn't exalt or glorify Christ. And these teachers in John's day, he says, look, they have already proliferated. They're already on their mission. They're everywhere. And we would have to say the same thing today. Are you alert? Are you listening? They are everywhere. One talk show host that literally has a following of millions of people talks often of spiritual themes. She's lived for 25 years with a man to whom she's not married. She's created a convoluted, self-made religion with elements taken from Christianity and humanism, Catholicism, New Ageism, Eastern mysticism. She regularly invites mystics, spiritualists, 
pseudo-spiritual leaders and teachers on her show. She spent a, a weekend a few years ago of spiritual silence. She brought along her yoga instructor to provide meditation and guidance as they, she rediscovered their center, their wholeness, as she put it. She completed her weekend and then described it in her magazine, which is simply called O, after her name, Oprah. I was in the grocery store line. I saw the article about this spiritually rich weekend, so I bought the magazine and hid it between the eggs and the bread and <laughs> made it to my car without anybody seeing, I think. I wanted to see what all this spiritual insight was about. She wrote about what she learned from her weekend of silence. And I quote her. Our real power comes from knowing who we are. And that begins with looking inside ourselves in silence. I've always believed you really need no gurus, no leaders, no guides. You just need yourself. You have all your own best answers. What you are trying to find is already there. Be still and know it. I hardly need a comment, but I do have time. (laughs) Listen, the truth is not in you, is it? I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it's really not in us. The only thing we find in ourselves is depravity, sin. In our flesh dwells no good thing. We die daily. We We crucify the flesh. We lament like Paul about this body of death. And we surrender daily, moment by moment, to the Spirit of God, for in Him is truth and life. You don't need a weekend of silence. You need the Savior. In case you're new in the faith here today, uh, let let me close up this stitch. The Bible doesn't actually say, be still and know it. Or as she was really twisting to make her own point, be still and know yourself because all the answers are in you. Now David wrote in Psalm 46 verse 10, or the psalmist did, which this poor dear lady twisted in order to make her own convoluted point. The psalmist is actually quoting God who says, be still and know, say it with me, that I am God. Because honestly, I will be exalted Among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. Because the world doesn't want to know about a God who's sovereign, who will be exalted over everybody and everything, let's rush to applaud the message of those who merrily tell us what we want to hear, that it's really all about us. But those who have the Spirit of God within them, look at verse 6. We are from God... And he who knows, he who genuinely knows God, listens to us. Key word, us. He's referring to the apostolic community, God's messengers, true spokesmen, delivering to the church the gospel which we now hold in our hands called the New Testament. In this form, through the apostles this came. And the last verse in the last chapter of the Bible ends with a period. He says, here's this contrast. 
By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The word error is from the the word plane, which we transliterate to get our word planet. He's already used it, and I've mentioned this, but that's the word the ancients used of those bodies out there in space that seem to them to just wander aimlessly. What a tragic description of unbelieving humankind that wanders, wanders. Let me give you three summary statements to wrap up this paragraph and then we're done. First, remember the problem of spiritual deception isn't new. I find that encouraging. I mean, we're, we're in a battle, but it's encouraging to know that John was battling it as well, false teaching related to the person of Christ. We have the same battle going on today. In fact, we're, we're also told, if you read through the end of the book, that spiritual deception is going to continue, and it's even going to exist in the millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ literally physically sits upon a throne. At the end of a thousand years of near-perfect conditions, millions will disbelieve him and march against him. Let's overthrow Jesus. Deception continues into the end of human history as we know it, Revelation chapter 20. Spiritual deception isn't new. Secondly, remember the principle that the Bible is enough. Enough. The Bible is God's inspired word, sufficient to equip you for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.17. You have everything you need that pertains to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3. You've got everything you need that pertains to life and godliness. You don't have to go beyond that period and write new stuff. Isn't it interesting that many of the religions and cults of the world have the Bible and they don't have a problem with it, but it's something in addition to the Bible? They'll tell you this is fine, but we've got something new. So it's the Bible plus Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price. It's the Bible plus Mary Baker Eddy's Science and health with the key to the scriptures. It's the Bible plus the Jehovah's Witnesses' Zion's Watchtower. It's the Bible plus the Hindus' Bhagavad Gita. That's fine. You can keep the Bible, just add the Bhagavad Gita to it. It's the Bible plus papal decrees and church traditions. It's, it's the Bible plus Scientology's Dianetics. It's the Bible plus the Jewish mystics' Kabbalah. False religions always promote something in addition to the Bible. You can keep the Bible, but we've got something else. Are we alert? That ought to tip us off. Because they'll come up on your porch, perhaps, or you have them at work, or you see them, or you read about them, or you're watching them. Maybe they personally say to you, we, I've had one couple say to me on one occasion in my neighborhood, we'd like to interest you in the Bible. I said, I'm interested. That's how they began. But it was really the Bible plus. Isaiah the prophet warned, and that warning exists to this day, if they, that is spiritual teachers, 
If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They fail the test. Spiritual deception isn't new. The Bible is enough. Third, remember, the person of Jesus Christ is eternally divine. So be alert to anything that diminishes his glory, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his coming. He is and always was and always will be God the Son, who at one point in time came in the flesh. Warn people around you who may be misled. Dean Niferatus was riding the number 22 CTA bus in Chicago. The bus David Walls writes, was filled with dozing office workers, restless young people, and affluent shoppers. But at the Clark and Webster stop, two men and a woman climbed in. The driver, a seasoned veteran, immediately called out, everybody, watch your valuables, pickpockets on board. And everybody paid attention. They all woke up. Women clutched their handbags and men reached for their wallets and cell phones and all eyes, he writes, were fixed on these three who looked rather insulted and harassed, but they didn't even break their stride as they promptly exited through the middle doors of the bus and out. (laughs) Stay alert. Stay awake. There are those who will come to steal away things that matter. Tell each other the truth. Boldly warn others of false teaching. Don't stray from the scriptures. Learn all you can about Christ, and while you're at it, keep your eyes on Jesus. Exalt Jesus. Follow Jesus Christ. Surrender to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. 